Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a wonderful show planned for you today. I am really excited to talk about everything we're going to get into. Brianna, very nice to see you. It's good to be back, Robbie. Well, let's kick it off. Well, first up today, White House officials yesterday downplayed the Biden administration's own determination that lab leak is the most likely origin of COVID-19, pushing back against the Department of Energy's report as lacking consensus. Let's watch. The president made uh, trying to find the origins of COVID a priority right when he came into office. And he's got a whole of government effort designed to do that. Uh, there is not a consensus right now in the U.S. government about exactly how COVID started. You said that right now there is not a consensus. Will there ever be a definitive answer from the Biden administration on the origins of COVID-19? And how much of that is dependent on cooperation from China? We really do want to know uh, what, what happened here, uh, because the president wants to make sure that we're postured to prevent uh, any future pandemics, or if not prevent them, to be able to get farther along ahead of them. So we're working very hard to understand this as best we can. Again, there's just no consensus across the government. The work continues, and I'm not going to get ahead of, of conclusions that haven't been uh, arrived at yet. Later, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre faced a grilling from Fox News' Jackie Heinrich over officials' previous dismissals of lab leak as a conspiracy theory. Let's hear what she had to say. There was not so long ago a point where anyone asking the question of whether a lab leak was a credible theory that should be looked into, you know, a lot of those people were derided as, as fringe, you know, conspiracy theorists. So are there lessons learned you know, looking back about how we discuss um, theories when we don't have all of the answers. So what, here's what I can tell you is the president's commitment to getting to the bottom of this, right? That is what's the most important so that we can, you know, we can share this with Congress, we can share this with the American people. That is why he asked the IC uh, to do its work. And right now there is no consensus. There is no consensus. Well, some criticize the DOE's expertise on the matter. It's important to note that the Energy Department does have a special division that, as part of its mission to track and mitigate the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, specializes in the study of biological weapons, such as viruses, which is, is an interesting point to note. I was curious about that, too, because I think there are eight agencies that are all kind of independently mm -hmm. tasked with getting to the bottom of it. I think that's what they mean when they say there's no consensus. Sure, this is one of those eight agencies that's come to this determination. But that's kind of missing the forest for the trees, because what's so critical for those of us who've been talking about this for two years now is the way that even an interrogation of this theory as a possible explanation for the start of COVID mm -hmm. was dismissed as crazy, conspiratorial, fringe, right-wing, and to even talk about it. I remember I did an episode of my podcast about it, I think, in June of 2001, and there was so much pushback and hand-wringing about how, oh, now you've sold out and you're insane because you've even right. raised the topic. No, it was crazy. Yes, it's all fair to say this is by no means the final word on the subject. We still don't know for certain. It, it was a low-confidence projection. They're now one of two federal agencies that have that are now leaning in the direction of lab leak. The FBI has also reached that conclusion with moderate confidence. Um, so things are trending in the direction of greater confidence in lab leak theory, but absolutely a lot more investigating needs to be done. No one should rule out the alternative theory. But this is like, 
it's like people are are waking up, and, and and by people, I mostly mean people in the media, because honestly, the, the White House has not necessarily been responsible for trying to tamp sure. down lab leak speculation. Joe Biden has said it should be investigated and, and, and that he does not trust everything he hears from, from the Chinese. So that, that was actually, that was not controversial or, or, or political. The people who made it political were the mainstream media. I'm sorry, it was them. It was people who wrote in, in places like the Washington Post and the New York Times and on CNN previously, years ago, about how you were a racist conspiracy theorist for asking these questions. It didn't make any sense for, for them to take that posture, but because people like Senator Tom Cotton, uh, who's a Republican, were being particularly vocal, not saying that the Chinese de like deliberately released it to kill America, just saying that we have a lot of concerns that it could have accidentally emerged from a lab, and and we don't really trust the Chinese government to to tell us exactly what happened. Like that should have been totally uncontroversial. And people started covering for honestly for the Chinese government in saying, wait, wait, you're a racist if you think that. Yeah, the, that racist aspect of it was so fascinating. I saw some commentators pointing out that if anything, the implication yes. that like Chinese, uh, you know, animal, you know, that's eating the, that's the racially problematic was, yes. was as as or more. Well, racist. especially because the lab leak theory also impugns U.S. funding priorities exactly. because we funded this research exactly. on bats, on coronaviruses in Wuhan. I mean, the lab leak is like the anti-racist theory. It's inclusive of different people right, of different is, races, and it's not yeah. and it's not uh, it's not people based. It's about institutions that fail. Which is arguably why so many of our institutions. I mean, you point to the media as being the the group that ran cover uh, against the lab leak theory. But it was also a lot of people in the scientific community. I remember when uh, Jeffrey Sachs, he uh, spearheads Lancet um, magazine, science magazine's uh, investigation into COVID. And that was controversial. He received pushback. There was pushback within the, within the medical community, especially because here was someone of, you know, kind of public esteem, political esteem at an esteemed medical journal opening up the door to the possibility that lab leak theory was legitimate. And all of that just seemed too, I think, official mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, because in that context, that particular medicalized, you know, um, you know, specialized context that was completely antithetical to say anything about lab leak theory being legitimate. Because of the pressure coming from mainstream media relying on certain uh, health officials, you were literally not allowed to discuss the lab leak theory on Facebook. Facebook had a policy of blanket blocking such content because of the unanimity of the yeah. pressure from mainstream media on the subject. It's it's really crazy. I mean, this this does this feels like a like a like a Galileo still say look, look it, it, it moves it's, it moves I'm sorry and I, and I saw you scrapping it up with some people yeah I got into it weekend. on Twitter and I, I almost feel bad for folks because I, I have not on this issue but on some other issues I have been the one that has basically accepted the narrative that's been coming down the mainstream media everybody believes this thing the scientists all believe I don't have time to nitpick at every single thing that's going on and have later realized oh shoot they were misleading Thing. You know, they were lying to me about things. And so I see people that are engaging, going through this cognitive dissonance right now because they have been gaslit for years yes. now about the possibility of this being true. Well, speaking of, la uh, late, uh, late night television hosts had a field day uh, mocking the Department of Energy's reporting last night. Take a look. Now, if, like me, you're wondering why the Department of Energy is the one making this judgment, it's because that agency oversees a network of U.S. national laboratories, some of which conduct advanced biological research. No, no. <laughs> Bad 
Red Energy Department. No bio labs until you finish building your electric car charging stations. <laughs> Stay in your lane. You don't see, you don't see, you don't see, you don't see the Census Bureau building nukes. But whatever, who am I to say? They're the energy department. I'm sure they're smart. They wouldn't release these findings unless they were absolutely confident. What's that? <laughs> they made their judgment with low confidence. <laughs> yeah. How can you conclude something with low confidence? <laughs> That's not a conclusion. I think the word you're looking for is guess. <laughs> By the way, conclusion with low confidence is such a f boy move. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're dating someone and they go, babe, what are we? And you're like, Sarah, I can tell you for sure. I don't know. That was some coping. That was some <laughs> so coping. I mean, look, right. And they're in that position of trying to of trying to say, but it's low confidence because they got so over their skis in saying it was crazy to think it in the first place. Like on the other side, right, we're not saying we know for sure well, and it's not. proven that it's a lab leak. We're saying we need to further investigate it. It's a compelling possibility. They're the ones now, and they have to try to poke holes at it because they went so crazy the other way. I mean, you remember when Colbert got absolutely destroyed by Jon Stewart on his own sh uh, own show over Labley, when Jon mm -hmm. Stewart started saying, maybe, maybe it, like, what did he say? He said, if there was an accident at, like, the, 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 the like, the, um, like a, a, a chocolate river gushing everywhere, and there was a chocolate factory next door, <laughs> wouldn't you think maybe it came from the chocolate factory? Uh, it was a great, uh, it was a great clip, and Colbert was just, like, flabbergasted. It was uncomfortable that he was saying yeah, this. Yeah, because the mainstream narrative has <laughs> been not that we have low confidence or moderate confidence that it probably right. wasn't lab leak. It was, it was absolutely not lab Shut leak. Anybody who thought it was is crazy and maybe even racist. Oh. Well, over on CNN, uh, former White House COVID response coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks seemed more willing than the late night TV host to accept the DOE's findings. What do we know now about this virus, how it mutates, how it spreads through humans? What do we know that China was doing? And it makes total sense that China was working on a vaccine and growing these, growing these viruses in tissue culture. That changes the virus over time. That's what you do in the laboratory. And so it makes sense. Are we doing enough now as a country? Is the United States doing enough to prevent this from happening again? No. And uh, I was watching CNN last night, and they were covering it uh, quite a bit, but almost from a we just realized this is a possibility kind of standpoint. I mean, their, their coverage a year ago was so condemning of, and obviously it's a big network, I'm sure different people felt differently. Sure. I was watching Wolf Blitzer's coverage of it last night, it was perfectly, perfectly adequate. Uh, right, reflecting, again, that we are not confident about this, we don't know for sure, it needs more investigating. But uh, it, it, this is one of the wilder media uh, screw-ups, in, in my view, to just they going so far in saying you're crazy if you ever don't ever say this. Do you think this has uh, Trump derangement syndrome fingerprints on this? Is this because no. the theory emerges when Donald Trump is president because there's legitimacy coming from someone like Donald Trump? Because I remember there was yeah. this warring moment at the beginning of 2020 where Trump was being accused of xenophobia for saying anything related to the origins of COVID being China. 
At the same time, Biden wrapping up the primary issued an ad that was, I think, more genuinely actually xenophobic. It was, it was a genuinely racist ad. And it was a weird moment because China, Trump's characterization of the virus as having a Chinese origin. And not, not, you know, some mm -hmm. of that, like, Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, is a necessary kind of framing. But mm -hmm. just saying the virus originated in China was having people go into apoplectic shock in the media. Mm -hmm. But Joe Biden's sincerely <laughs> xenophobic ad kind of flew under the radar. And I wonder if part of this defensiveness we're seeing now and the way that people really doubled down on not entertaining lab leak theory at all is because it just became one of those Trump-coded things very early and they weren't able to untangle themselves Well, it's important that. to remember the very beginning of the pandemic, everything was opposite land. It, yeah. it was... Uh, it was liberal media people downplaying the threat of, of the virus, saying that travel restrictions would be crazy, you know, you're a fascist if you support them. Mm. Um, and it, it, was, it was some certain conservative quarters who were very, very alarmed. Um, but then also, like, right, right, as you said, Biden was very critical of the Chinese government. There was a—Trump was not universally critical of the Chinese government. There were, he made several statements about how, no, they're doing very, very well, and I'm working—you know, in his kind of, we're working so close, and mm -hmm. they respect me, so mm -hmm. I'm going to say nice things about mm -hmm. them. Uh, then eventually he took a more anti-Chinese—I mean, he's just inconsistent, as he is with everything. So, uh, so, so it certainly—but it didn't need to acquire the partisan framing— it acquired, and it, it has caused some people in the mainstream to just lose their minds. Uh, I'm going to talk more about this uh, in, in my radar. Some examples of people um, who who uh, who I think really got this wrong, and uh, I, I actually have a little, a little bit of a scoop to share in my radar about the Global Disinformation Index mm. and uh, what they were doing on the subject. If you remember them. So. Oh yeah, I can't wait, Robbie. All right. Well, we will have more rising right after this. So we'll be talking about this all day and lots of other things. We actually have Phil Wegman on, reporter for Real Clear Politics to tell us what he asked the government about the lab leak theory at a press release uh, press briefing yesterday. You won't want to miss any of that. All right, Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, with everyone in the mainstream media finally waking up to the reality that COVID-19 could have escaped from a lab, it's time to do some scorekeeping. Yesterday, I criticized a number of journalists who unfairly smeared lab leak defenders as racist conspiracy theorists. The New York Times lead coronavirus reporter, Apoorva Mandavilli, chief among them. Mandavilli said the lab leak theory had racist roots. What she was actually doing is running cover for China's authoritarian government, who relied on useful idiots in the media to downplay the Chinese government's potential culpability on grounds that criticizing the Chinese government plays into Republican or Trumpian notions about the badness of China. But in fact, the U.S. Energy Department now believes, admittedly, with low confidence, that a lab leak is the more likely explanation for COVID's origins. No matter how desperately The New York Times, CNN, The Washington Post, and other outlets had wanted to downplay this possibility. But it wasn't just journalists. Remember the Global Disinformation Index? That's the British nonprofit that smeared Reason Magazine, where I work as an editor, as an unsafe news website using dubious criteria. Well, the Global Disinformation Index might want to take a closer look at newly uncovered disinformation being spread by the website of the Global Disinformation Index. 
Now, GDI is partly funded by the U.S. State Department and seeks to discourage advertisers from working with news outlets, like Reason, on the theory that we misinform our readers. It has recently come under considerable criticism from conservative and libertarian news websites following the publication of an expose in the Washington Examiner. GDI earned itself additional criticism this week after the U.S. Energy Department endorsed the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origins. Previous reports by GDI warned advertisers to blacklist news sites that attempted to blame the pandemic on a lab leak and implied that any website asserting a cover-up on the part of the Chinese government was promoting racist disinformation with the capacity of harming Asian people. GDI's messaging on the lab leak theory was clear and consistent. News websites that explored this topic should be demonetized. According to reporting by the Washington Examiner's Gabe Kaminsky, I'm quoting from this article, GDI alleged in a February report dubbed Coronavirus, the Makings of a Disinformation Pandemic, the adversarial narratives are emerging as a key disinformation tactic. The report called out Senator Tom Cotton for raising the possibility on Fox News that COVID-19 came from a lab. Quote, by broadcasting the senator's words to a national audience, this debunked conspiracy theory is given authority, validation, and amplification, said GDI in the report. One month later, according to Kaminsky, in March 2020, GDI released a report titled, Why is Ad Tech Funding These Ads on Coronavirus Conspiracy Sites? The report slammed Google and other companies for, quote, providing ad revenue streams to known disinformation sites peddling coronavirus conspiracies, called out the conservative blog American Thinker for publishing a commentary article titled, The Wuhan Virus Escaped from a Chinese Lab. GDI also took aim at a company selling N95 masks for advertisers for advertising in the article. That's all quoting there from Kaminsky's article, which I encourage you to check out. Now, portraying the lab leak notion as a dangerous racist conspiracy theory never made any sense, and journalists, health officials, and disinformation trackers like GDI that enforce this narrative should feel profoundly embarrassed. But that's not all GDI has to atone for. Now, one of the journalists I called out yesterday for saying the lab leak theory was racist conspiracy theory is Ann Applebaum of The Atlantic. Now, she penned an unfortunate tweet that likened Senator Tom Cotton to a Soviet propagandist for merely raising the possibility that COVID-19 escaped from a Chinese laboratory. Now, Applebaum has previously produced some excellent work. She has authored two books on the horrors of Soviet communism, Gulag, which is a history of Soviet prisons, and Red Famine, about uh, the deliberate starvation of people in Ukraine. But she erred when she described the lab leak theory as akin to Russian disinformation. Notably, Applebaum was also listed on the GDI's website as one of its principal journalistic advisors. So given GDI's misguided approach to lab leak theory, I wondered if Applebaum was partly responsible, had she advised them to do that, and whether she would now advise them to change course. So yesterday, I emailed her. Her response uh, was surprising, to say the least. She says, quote, Till a few days ago, I was not aware that I was listed as an advisor on the GDI website. I last spoke to them when they were still raising money, probably 2018 or 2019, have not advised them on anything or had any contact since. I have asked to have my name taken off their website, which they agreed to do. So GDI misrepresenting Applebaum as a member of its advisory panel is especially hypocritical given the organization's stated reason for placing Reason, my magazine, on its list of 10 riskiest online news outlets, if you recall. GDI dinged Reason and other outlets for not displaying, quote, information regarding authorship attribution, pre-publication fact-checking, or post-publication corrections processes. So it's not exactly clear what the organization even meant by this. They did not respond to my request for comment. 
but their own website has clearly committed a transgression that sounds remarkably similar. It listed an advisor who actually had nothing to do with the organization on the website. And by the way, nowhere on GDI's website now does it currently explain the mistake. There's no statement along the lines of um, Applebaum was erroneously listed as an advisor and we regret the error. So it seems like GDI lacks clarity regarding its own authorship, attribution, and fact-checking processes. Time and time again, so-called disinformation watchdogs fail their own tests. This is a particularly galling example. The State Department has no business funding such sanctimony. And the hypocrisy is unending, by the way. MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan complained that conservatives were whining about whether COVID came from a lab or a wet market yesterday, implying that it really doesn't matter. So I responded, tweeting, do you honestly think the lab leak doesn't have any policy implications? The U.S. government funded the research on bats at the lab in Wuhan, and Anthony Fauci was the foremost public advocate of doing so. Hassan responded to me. He wrote, ah, so here come the Fauci conspiracies. Didn't take long. I guess that's all it is. Can't talk about it. Fauci conspiracies. I, I, I Incredible, know. That, isn't it? <laughs> that particular logical fallacy always gets me. Twitter, when people say Twitter is bad and the discourse on Twitter is bad and it's not substantive debate on Twitter, it's because of responses like that that don't engage with the substance of what you're, you're trying to say there. Does it matter? Does it not? No. Here's, here's why it does really, really matter. If I were trying to limit my liability, because there were, was a global pandemic that resulted in millions of deaths, untold billions, trillions in economic losses, mass unemployment, all of that. And I could attribute it to someone who slaughtered an animal for food prep in the wrong way versus a multi-billion dollar international <laughs> organization with deep pockets who could actually pay, I would want to say, oh, no, 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 no. It was just the person who was, you know, yeah. cooking animals wrong, or cooking animals in an unsanitary way. And you think that'd be way. obvious to a Mehdi Hassan type person who I know has, has it, it progressive uh, 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 principles and other, you know, is, is interrogating of business and government uh, from a left perspective and just goes blank on this. But to be clear, again, it could be the wet market. <laughs> sure. It definitely sure. could Let's be. Let's find out. But to, to, to listen to, remember in the early days also, there was this little mini scandal, didn't become a big scandal because the media wasn't interested in this sort of thing. But one of the men who had been cited routinely for why it could not have been lab leak, th leak theory was linked to the funding of one of the major labs in yeah. Wuhan. Yeah. So over and over again, yeah. from the beginning, it was suspicious because of those kinds of moments. It became, it was very, very clear from a money man perspective that the interest of everybody involved was to make sure it was on somebody with limited liability, people who are unidentifiable. You know, China very quickly kind of moved in and cleaned up the wet, la the wet market so there wasn't a lot that could be discovered there. And it was very easy to place the blame on an unaccountable party. Now, again, it could could be that unaccountable wet lab mm -hmm. mysterious origin. Mm -hmm. But how, as an investigative reporter, you don't have any curiosity about why, absent clear proof, the narrative was so strongly, unequivocally, in one direction, and why so quickly it became a sacrilege to say to be even be open to the alternative in any kind of public setting, that should have set red flags off among the very people who are now coping, as you put it in an earlier segment, to make sense of, of, the, of the narrative that they've been regurgitating for the last And how years. about that? And I, I don't mean to harp on it, but this Global Disinformation Index oh, tried man. to get my, my website <laughs> and many others to try to you know target their funding, to have advertisers stop working with them. You'd think if you were going to get all hot and bothered about what the authorship and 
post-publication fact-checking process is, your website better be pretty squeaky clean. And they just made up that this, that this journalist was involved in this thing in an ongoing fashion. And then they didn't, then they didn't acknowledge that they, that they corrected it. it I'm, it's just it's the whole disinformation look, industry the, the, is the, just. The don't believe it because Trump said it. Don't believe it because Reason mm -hmm. said it. Don't believe it because a leftist said it. Like mm -hmm. that, and what, what, what uh, um, Mehdi Hassan's doing there, don't, don't believe it because this is a criticism of Fauci. And you know the kind of people who criticize Fauci. That is exactly the problem with the discourse right now. It's why, you know, we, we don't actually have different outlets covering the same kind of news, and it leads mm -hmm. people to believe, like, it, it forces people into their silos. I wish I could turn on Fox News and also see coverage of what's going on with the Dominion scandal. I mm -hmm. wish I could turn on CNN and see coverage of lab leak theory. But that doesn't exist. And so what you believe becomes completely determined by the yeah. news channels you watch, unless you happen to find some bipartisan outlets yeah. like the ones we have here. Well, that's why the best practice is for people to rapidly flip back and forth between the various <laughs> channels so you can get a balanced news diet. That's what I do. I think yeah. more people should do that. Well, we will have more Rising right after this. Please stay with us. Well, it's come to light that CNN commentator David Urban lobbied for transportation company Norfolk Southern the rail operator at the center of the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, that released toxic chemicals into the air. This is according to Media Matters. Until 2020, Urban was the president of lobbying firm American Continental Group, where he lobbied for Norfolk Southern on transportation issues related to railways, starting in 2009, according to federal disclosure forms. He and his firm collected at least $1.1 million, according to a calculation of federal data by ProPublica. CNN political correspondent Dana Bash held a roundtable discussion on Sunday about the East Palestine trail derailment, derailment featuring Urban. And according to Media Matters, CNN never disclosed or asked Urban about his work for the rail company. Now, we've reached out to CNN about this matter and have not heard back at the time of this taping. Wow. I, I know who, exactly who this is. I see him on CNN frequently. He's on a lot. Oh, yeah. And we should get into some of the other <laughs> things that he has a conflict of interest about that he talks about on the show. But, but, but keep this in mind. During the segment, Dana Bash you know, mentioned the fact that Trump ha the Trump administration had rolled back some of these regulations. To which Urban replied, quote, there's plenty of blame to go around on this. These kinds of things happen. But what's important is we do the right thing moving forward to take care of people in these towns and communities. And then he went on to criticize the Biden administration for their handling of the crisis. Now, I have no problem at all criticizing the Biden administration sure. for the crisis. But running cover for the direct role that the Trump administration played in setting the stage for this crisis is not what you would expect a neutral commentator to do. It's what you would expect a lobbyist to do. Right, right. And regardless, I don't care how neutral he may or may not be, he, you have to disclose someone who was working in a very high up position in lobbying. I mean, you know, the revolving door between government and lobbying and media is, uh, is disgusting in and of itself. But um, you, you gotta, that's gotta be disclosed. I, I guess I, I'm not saying don't put him on the panel, I guess. You're, you can hear out his perspective, but 
the, the Chiron should say, and this guy, this guy worked for lobbying railroads. Well, they can't do that because any uh. reasonable person watching that and seeing that Chiron wouldn't believe a word that's coming out of this man's mouth. He also apparently uh, worked to help elect Donald Trump, which is another conflict of interest, which should be disclosed. Now, plenty of people on CNN yeah, I mean, that's a... worked to elect any number, worked on yeah. the Clinton campaigns and all of this. Frankly, a lot of people on those liberal channels uh, in MSNBC also worked for the Bush administration and things like that. So, But all of them, I believe, should be disclosing those mm -hmm. kinds of relationships if they're going to be continuing to basically run cover. I and mean, we discussed this last week um, with Jen Psaki going on to have a show on, is it CNN or MSNBC or CNN? I can't remember now. Oh, I can't either. Um, MSNBC. But, you know, the, the question being... What is going to be her role there? And mm -hmm. is she going to be willing to be critical of the Biden administration? And what does this mean for the audience who eventually is going to forget the way right. that everybody has forgotten about uh, Bush's comms woman over on MSNBC? Right. Um, that, that, that's the role that she's kind yeah, of Yeah, right now, most people watching probably know that Jen Psaki is fresh out of the administration, unlike this guy right. uh, who is doing rail commentary. You would have had no idea that uh, that he was a lobbyist right. formerly, but you're right. The right the the memory fades. Um, you're talking about um, Nicole Wallace. Nicole, Nicole Wallace, yeah. exactly. By the way, Urban also has urged. This is all from um, Media Matters. This commentator has urged a military strike against Iran without any disclosure that he worked for defense contractors. He's praised then-Defense Secretary Mark Esper without the network disclosing that he personally lobbied the Defense Department on behalf of defense contractors. Mm. He repeatedly attacked environmental protections without disclosing that he lobbied for fossil fuel-related clients, including Norfolk Southern, which, of course, transports coal and other toxic chemicals. Uh, he repeatedly pushed for the passage of a trade agreement on air after he was hired to lobby for it. The network didn't disclose that conflict of interest. And he was he touted a lobbying client's opposition to a tax bill without any disclosure that he was being paid to do so. You really want to tell your viewers who the person they're hearing from is. I mean, that's a pretty basic thing. They should have some understanding of and appreciation of where this person's views come from, and then they can decide for themselves. Well, people should know that this is more common than not, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, Norfolk Southern has been accused of making plans to destroy evidence in the Ohio train derailment by moving wrecked rail cars from the site, according to residents' lawyers. In a statement to Rising, Norfolk Southern said they are unable to comment on active litigation or the proceedings, but they do want to provide some context for our reporting. They said, quote, we're working hard to build the trust between Norfolk Southern and the residents of East Palestine. I'm attaching a letter from President and CEO Alan Shaw, who has personally been back to East Palestine many times since the derailment happened, meeting and talking with locals and community leaders and not just easy conversations. Please see our description for the full response they provided. So the story here, of course, is that they are being accused of moving up, moving the site, cleaning up the site before an investigation into what caused the accident that could potentially, you know, link uh, liability, uh, you know, make the case for liability for Northern Southern. Oh, do you, could do you be think done. that's? Do you think that's? Fair? I, they want to clean it up to. Neutral, they could want to clean it up to neutralize the hazardous. Well, that's all the argument that they're making. Um, they're, I mean, they they have claimed that they have the whole reason they did the controlled burn and all of that, uh, putting some barriers and and uh, nearby rivers and streams, is because they have neutralized the threat. They're the ones with the, mm -hmm. in, you know conjunction with the EPA that are doing these air tests and telling people to go back to their homes. What they've done, what they're saying is that they're giving right, people two the days. Government. They're giving people two days to investigate 
the site, mm -hmm. which people feel like is an arbitrary and too brief time period to thoroughly investigate in a way that they're going to need to do to prove liability down the line. Yeah. I'm, that's, uh, it's very concerning because we do not, no one should want to see them escape paying the full price for their action. They should have to pay, they should have to make right for everyone affected by the derailment and they're gonna try to scoot out of it and they're gonna have their representatives on cable news apparently not telling you that that's what they're doing right. and explaining why, yeah, oh, this happens all the time. It's now it's no worth problem. noting that this would be a non-issue if as some legal experts advise, we had what is called a strict liability standard so that when people are engaged in extremely hazardous mm -hmm. business practices like transporting toxic materials, if there is an accident, they're strictly liable, meaning that you don't have to actually prove negligence um, or any of the things that you need to establish by looking at the crash right. site. The fact of the crash and the spill is proof that there was an accident that they are therefore liable for. Um, but unfortunately, I don't know if you remember the tort reform debates in the 1990s, but there was right. a lot of business-backed conservative pushback against that kind of... Um, uh, legal framing because it would have business interests liable in situations exactly like this. And now the onus, as always, is on the townspeople to have to prove, prove causation, to prove negligence, and a process that's very expensive and for which they're much worse equipped than a multi-billion dollar uh, railroad company. Well, we will continue to follow that story, of course, and we'll have more rising right after this. Debate over gain-of-function research, the type of research that is at the heart of the lab leak story, at least potentially, has reignited since the Department of Energy said that this is the likely origin of the COVID-19 pandemic, a escape from a lab. Now, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby had this to say about President Biden's continued support of funding for gain-of-function research. Does the president believe that this type of gain-of-function research is proven? He believes that... Um, it's important to help prevent future pandemics, which means he understands that there has to be legitimate scientific research into the sources or potential sources of pandemics so that we understand it so that we can prevent them and we can prevent them from happening, obviously. Um, but he also believes, and, and, and this is why he wants the the whole of government effort here to understand it, um, that that research has to be done, must be done in a safe and secure manner as and as transparent as possible to the rest of the world so that so people know what's going on. So I think that's a fancy way of saying yes. Meanwhile, Senator Rand Paul told Real Clear Politics White House report Philip Wegman, quote, if we have learned anything from this pandemic, it's that risky, virus-enhancing research, like the type conducted in Wuhan that was funded by the U.S. government, needs more oversight and regulation. He joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Philip. Thanks for having me. So th this is an interesting uh, kind of uh, trade-off that's being raised here. It's being framed as, should we do gain-of-function research versus should we not do gain-of-function research? Is that the right question? Is it possible to do gain-of-function research safely at all? That's a question that the previous administrations took up 
uh, before a once in a century pandemic and before there was a lot of debate, um, much of it very emotional about whether or not there were some things that should be out of bounds. So if, if you ignore all of the context, something that normally you shouldn't do in news, uh, but if you ignore the last three years, including that pandemic that killed more than a million Americans, uh, this story is just one about how the Biden administration is considering whether or not there should be new regulations on a type of research that the Obama administration put a taxpayer-funded uh, moratorium on and that the uh, Trump administration then lifted three years later. Setting aside you know, all of the, the controversy that we've seen, this is still a fierce debate that is happening uh, among scientists currently. And then when you look at all of the context, of course, uh, it, it becomes that much more charged. I think that what the uh, administration is doing is they're trying to be forthright and say, you know, we think that there is some merit to this type of analysis, uh, but we want significant safeguards. So this is all happening, you know, with the, the context of the Department of Energy coming out uh, and saying that they're now it, it, in the direction of thinking it was a lab leak. They're expressing that with low confidence. Obviously, it's not the final word on the subject. No one should say it's, you know, conclusively been determined or something like that. But there was a lot of media reporting in the last uh, 48 hours on lab leak theory. This, this issue is getting more mainstream attention than it's ever gotten. And previously, when it was getting mainstream attention, it was being derided as something only like conspiracy theorists were buying into. So I, I think it's great to be putting these kinds of questions um, to actual, you know, government um, figures. Uh, you know, what did you make of Kirby's response uh, to you? And do you sense any shifting in the government's willingness to, to indulge in lab leak speculation, which was something they were willing to do to some degree before? It was really the media that was trying to clap down on it. But is it shifting at all? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the administration, this is not something that came out of the blue. Uh, the uh, NIH empowered a advisory board on biosecurity at the National Science Association to take a closer look at what type of new regulations should be put in place uh, for scientists here in the United States doing this type of research. And now, as the New York Times previously reported, uh, that decision rests with the White House. What we heard from Kirby on Tuesday was a pretty forthright explanation of where their head is. They think that there are some advantages to doing uh, research on, on pandemics, um, making some of these pathogens more dangerous so that you can get ahead of a, um, you know, of a catastrophe and, and, and plan for it. Uh, but, you know, there has to be, um, you know, safeguards put in place. I think his, his phrase was that it had to be safe, secure, and transparent. I'm not sure uh, that the public is going to have an appetite uh, for that type uh, of, um, you know, scientific inquiry. But what I do appreciate is that the administration that you know they gave a, a straight answer of where the president's thinking is on this question and rather than uh the media all just running to deride uh, anyone who who asks these sort of questions um there, there seems to be you know some reasoned uh reasoned analysis here um and i think that you know that is the the most significant change from what we saw over the last three years yeah the irony is that the kind of media shutdown of any conversations about uh, lab leak theory it took the conversation from a place where it could have been about 
How do we address the fact that there were warning signs? There was this 2018 report um, that there were safety issues at the Wuhan lab. How can we, you know, instead of focusing the problem on all of the warning signs that could have been addressed and the problems that could have made the process safer so that potentially useful research could have persisted, it instead became a conversation about how to, 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 you know, it's all or nothing, I think. It's a much more black and white conversation than it would have been otherwise, which it's not clear to me you know, if I'm not a scientist, I don't know if this kind of research is ultimately more beneficial than it is harmful. But given how many um, kind of uh, tension points there were or error points there were that could have been corrected, it seems a shame to be in a position where we could potentially be throwing out the, ba the baby with the bathwater prematurely without having a robust conversation if there are, in fact, safety protocols that could have been put in place. I remember there was reporting about how people who've been who, who visited the labs observed that they're basically tiered hierarchies of um, protections or safety measures at different kinds of labs, depending on how dangerous the materials they're working with are. And it was there was a clear mismatch with the gain-of-function research and the quality and level of the labs. Um, you know, we all know that there's, like, the last, uh, you know, black death, death virus or whatever, all of these extinct viruses, they keep up in Antarctica somewhere. You can imagine some really uber safety protocols that could go into place if it really was scientifically beneficial to do research on these things. Because again, you can imagine a world in which there's a, a pandemic that comes down the pike that we've done no research on, and people are complaining that the scientists were wrong to not have tried to get ahead of that and to not have started to do the kind of research that could make a vaccine come more quickly. So, I, you know, I don't know what your impression is uh, speaking to some of these officials uh, firsthand, Philip, but do, do you get the impression that there is at all any appetite for fixing the problem as opposed to pivoting to a shutdown of this kind of research altogether? I think that what we're seeing is a pivot back to the Obama era uh, square one here, because the Obama administration looks at the risks, weighs them against potential rewards and says, wait a minute, we don't want taxpayer funding going to this type of risky uh, research. And that was uh, the moratorium that was put in place in 2014. Then in 2017, it's the Trump administration that lifts that moratorium. And I think that what is beginning now and, and what hopefully we'll learn more about in the coming weeks and months ahead is whether or not uh, the scientific community as well as um, some of these government agencies are able to have a reasoned discussion and really um, focus on whether or not it is prudent to do this type of research uh, without a lot of the, the moral panic that we saw previously. Because uh, just as it is possible to say, hey, there are some benefits to this type of inquiry, it's also, you know, we have seen things that up until recently were more likely to be dismissed. For instance, uh, the Office of Inspector General's uh, letter from HHS saying, that NIH overlooked some um, red flags with EcoHealth Alliance, that they didn't do due diligence there. So the hope I think ought to be uh, that you get all of these smart people in the room and you say, all right, is this something that we actually need? Or are you just um, you know, a scientist who is excited to get your hands on uh, you know, old bubonic blood samples because of some strange you know, academic fascination? Or, or is this something that we actually could use, uh, you know, uh, heaven helping uh, to prevent uh, another once in a Don't give him any ideas, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that scene from Jurassic Park, right? Yep. You know, <laughs> yes, it scientists is. scientists were too focused on whether or not they could to ask if they should. Dr. Frankenstein's all the way down. Thank you so much for joining us today. Philip Wegman, we appreciate it.
and we'll have more rising right after this. The defense team for Alec Murdoch has rested in the state of South Carolina's murder case against the disgraced attorney. Prosecutors allege Murdoch, the descendant of a powerful South Carolina legal dynasty, shot and killed his wife and son at the family's home in 2021 in a failed effort to distract from the discovery he had embezzled millions of dollars, mostly from clients. Since proceedings began, Murdoch has been caught in a number of lies, including about his location on the day of the killings. Joining us now to fill us in on the rest of the case is News Nation senior national correspondent Brian Enton. Brian, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So we have not yet really covered this case. So for our viewers who maybe just be tuning in for the first time, you know, give us the nuts and bolts of what what is alleged. I mean, there are so many twists and turns uh, with this case and with this family. You mentioned it, the Murdoch family uh, legal dynasties in this part of South Carolina, where I am in the low country. I'm in Collington County, South Carolina. This is the courthouse behind me uh, where the trial is happening right now. Uh, essentially, he has now admitted to stealing millions and millions of dollars from his clients over the last decade or so. Poor people who he was supposed to be helping after they uh, you know, had falls and personal injuries and uh, car accidents. Uh, it now turns out that he was actually stealing that settlement money. Um, and then after that, uh, he was accused of killing his wife, Maggie, uh, and his son, Paul, out at their hunting farm, which is called Moselle, which is just about 30 minutes uh, from, from where I'm standing. His defense all along has been that he was close to his family, that he would never uh, have done that, that it may have been someone else uh, from, from their sordid past, because his family has had so much drama in this area. Uh, but the prosecution says he was actually trying to gain sympathy in light of all of those financial crimes uh, and his family really you know, losing a lot of their prestige in this area uh, when those financial crimes came to light. So part of what's so interesting about this story is that as horrific as the present charges are, the murder of the wife and the son, this is hardly the first time death and scandal has touched this family. There was the 2015 death, a hit-and-run death of Stephen Smith, the death of Gloria Satterfield in 2018. Can you run through why it is that this case is so gripping and kind of the long uh, history of legal entanglements that this family has been a part of? Yeah, it's been really interesting covering the trial because a lot of that stuff doesn't come out in court in mm. relation to this specific case uh, with Maggie and Paul Murdoch's deaths. But there's so much that has gone on uh, beyond this that the jury does know about in terms of these very, very shady deaths over the years uh, involving this family. Uh, you mentioned uh, the housekeeper. They had this longtime housekeeper out at their house who is really like a member of their family, uh, you know, a nanny to their children. Uh, she mysteriously fell down the stairs and died. Um, and then Alec Murdoch, who's now on trial, for the murders of his wife and son that actually talked her family uh, into, you know, uh, suing his insurance company. And then he stole some of that money, uh, which was just a whole crazy ordeal. Uh, also, um, Paul Murdoch, who's the victim here, who's Alex's son, uh, w was in this boat crash and was allegedly behind the wheel and drunk, crashed into a bridge. Uh, which killed one of his young friends uh, named Mallory Beach. Uh, the family allegedly tried to cover all of that up. And then you talked about Stephen Smith, which was this other young man in this area who mysteriously was found in the middle of the road. Uh, at first, they thought it was a hit and run, but now there's all sorts of questions. They've reopened the investigation. 
rumors swirl about whether that death may be involving one of Alec Murdoch's other sons. Um, so, you know, th there's no shortage of sort of controversy in in involving this family. Uh, and that's why I think, especially in this area, like all eyes are, are on what's happening in the courthouse. So the big news from a few days ago was that uh, Murdoch essentially admitted, correct, that he, he was not honest with prosecutors about, or with, uh, with the police, rather, about a number of details. Uh, so, but if, so if you want to believe still in his innocence, you'd have to believe that he lied about all sorts of things, but did not lie about committing the actual killings. Can you explain that? Yeah, so there's this one big lie um, that a lot of this is really going to come down to. The jury is obviously going to analyze. Um, basically, uh, in the in the beginning, Alec Murdoch said that he was uh, not at the property where the murders happened right before they happened. Then this video surfaced from social media that his son had taken, where you can see him and where you can hear his voice. Uh, and so now on the stand, Alec Murdoch has said, actually, um, I did lie. He's admitted to lying. And again, this has so many weird twists and turns. Um, but he says the reason he lied is because he is a drug addict, uh, was addicted to pain pills, was used to lying over and over again, trying to cover up his addiction. So he says when the police first showed up after the murders, um, it was sort of his natural inclination to lie because he was used to lying to his family and friends uh, about the pain pill addiction and that that's the reason um, he lied. Will the jury actually buy that? Um, you know, we'll probably know soon because this, this trial could wrap up by the end of the week. Uh, but it's taken so many twists and turns. I mean, this was supposed to go on for three weeks, uh, and we're now into week six. And, and again, for those folks who haven't been following the story closely, could you give us a little bit of detail about how the murders were alleged to have happened? Yeah, and there's a lot of questions there, too. So again, the Moselle property, which is the family's hunting property um, in the country about I'm standing outside the courthouse. Um, the murders happened on the property near some dog kennels. Uh, but the experts say that um, mother and son were killed with likely two different weapons, which has caused uh, a lot of questions about how that may have happened. There's no real hard evidence, um, tangible evidence, that connects Alec Murdoch to the murders. Like there's no video, there's no fingerprints. Um, nothing like that, which is which is what's going to make it difficult for the jury here. Um, and then what was interesting is yesterday, last week, likely of the trial, um, the uh, the defense puts on this this witness who now says that this is a forensic expert that 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 they believe um, that it may have actually been two people who killed Ma uh, Maggie and Paul Murdoch. So all sorts of theories flying. I think that's why there's so much interest in the case because no one really knows which way it's going to go with the jury. So has the defense strategy been to kind of um, confuse the issue, like, well, what about this? What about this? Can you really say for sure it was Murdoch because, you know, raising the possibility of another killer, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, and it is confusing. I mean, even even covering it from the outside and, and you know, knowing the case pretty well, there's been days where I'm confused and I'm wondering what direction are they going in? And then I just think about this jury um, who, again, they, they've spent six weeks hearing all sorts of theories hearing all about the lies. He's admitted to some lies. He hasn't admitted to some lies. But what's interesting is uh, likely tomorrow the jury's going to get the chance to go out sort of like a field trip and tour the Moselle hunting property and actually go to the place where the murders happened, which is somewhat unusual. I mean, it's happened before. It happened in, in, in the OJ case. It's happened in other cases. It happened in Parkland down in Florida. But it doesn't happen all the time. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see, see how that plays out with the jury actually going out there to the site. 
What are people saying with respect to motive? I know that there's this kind of conversation about uh, the embezzlement, $8.5 million in theft. You know, it's it's a part of the picture, but is it being connected? Is, is that, are those financial crimes being tied directly to any kind of motive to kill the wife and son as though they were, you know, there's an allegation that they were going to rat on him or somehow expose him or, or anything like that? Not so much rat on him or expose him, but it, but it is connected to, um, to, to the uh, prosecution sort of theory through all of this. What, what they've told the jury is they believe that because of all the financial crimes and because it was all unraveling and, you know, Alec Murdoch had, had been kicked out of his law firm that had his name. It was the Murdoch law firm. They kicked him out. Um, you know, the, the, um, the detectives were coming down on him. It was all starting to unravel. They were starting to realize just how much money he had stolen. And the prosecution theory here that they're hoping that the, um, the, the jury will buy is that, that Alec was looking for sympathy and, and everyone was starting to turn on him in this community where he had once been this big name. And as a way to, to garner that sympathy and get his name back, he thought by killing his wife and son, um, it, it may do that, that people would feel sorry for him. Uh, so so that's, sort of, that's sort of what the prosecution has pushed for the last six weeks. Mm. Mm. Incredible. Well, thank you, Brian, so much for joining us to discuss the case. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll have more Rising right after this. Democratic Representative Eric Swalwell weighed in on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy giving Fox News host Tucker Carlson unreleased January 6th footage. Let's hear what he had to say. Well, we're seeing uh, week by week that now Kevin McCarthy has to pay a new installment on that corrupt bargain, right? So last week, uh, the installment was to give Tucker Carlson uh, unfettered access to police footage, sensitive police footage of the Capitol on January 6th. You know, there's no good ending to that. Uh, it's, it's either going to be used to distort what happened on January 6th uh, by Tucker Carlson, or you just gave the proudest boy of all a blueprint uh, for the Capitol uh, that, you know, perhaps who knows where that will land, you know, for the next insurrection that could be planned. And this is what journalist Dana Milbank had to say about the footage. The truth is, this doesn't belong in the public domain for anybody. Uh, in uh, Kevin McCarthy's sort of cravenness to uh, uh, cater to the Matt Gaetzes and the Tucker Carlsons, he is risking uh, the security of himself and of his colleagues uh, and of the Capitol uh, itself. Still leaning into this safety rationale for uh, for urging this footage to be censored or kept from the media. I think if they say Tucker Carlson should not be the only one with access to it, we all, other journalists, we should all be able to see. We don't want him selectively revealing it. I would say, fine, that makes sense to me. But that's not what they're saying. Swalwell referring to Tucker Carlson as the proudest boy of all uh, and implying that once Tucker Carlson has the blueprint to the Capitol, that he's going to have his own personal mini yeah. insurrection is kind of a, a, a bizarre framing choice. In a way, he's essentially accusing Tucker of being a fed because the Proud Boy <laughs> leadership are all secretly <laughs> F, uh, informants for national law enforcement is what turns out to be over and over again. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a weird thing. Look. It is, it is possible and maybe probably true that there is the information on the tapes can be used to piece together congressional evacuation routes, mm -hmm. what their evacuation plans are, 
where in the building they go, et cetera. They got to change up that stuff anyway. That's the thing. <laughs> I, I would expect that one six forced them to reevaluate right. some things. It was a good test run. The ultimate fire drill. They probably yeah. learned things about what they should change. And you probably also have to When I responses. hide the Easter eggs for my nephews and they all find them, I don't hide them in the same place <laughs> <Right>. next year. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean to minimize this thing, right? They're, they're building a noose for Mike Pence in front of the building. You know, there was some of the footage, if you watched uh, some of the hearings, where Congress members came very close to crossing paths with mobs of people who really could have caused damage if there actually had been a, a direct confrontation. Who knows what would have happened? It didn't happen because, presumably, their security escorts knew what they were doing, and they had the ex escape routes, and everything worked out for the best. And I'm glad. But it does seem to be me to be very odd not to assume that new routes aren't going to need to be established anyway, yeah. that they can't be responsive to this. I mean, so much footage has come out through the course of the January 6th hearings that if this were really a concern, I would imagine, again, they're already responsive to the fact that they have to change things up because they've already released it, so much. It is it generally, it's a, it's a much more open to the public building than yeah. other government buildings. It's not like the White House. You, you, you were able to go in it until this whole thing happened. Um, so I don't know that I, I don't know that they really even believe that that's true. I, I think they do believe that the other thing they're kind of saying, which is that well, what if they use this to undercut the narrative of what happened on January sixth? That's what they're actually mad about. I think that's ridiculous. I think if they just came out and said it is not. Tucker should not be the only one with access to this footage. Let us all see it. That would be a perfectly fine argument to make. Now, it would run up. The, the problem they'd have with that is that they controlled the House until very recently, and Nancy Pelosi could have done what Kevin McCarthy has done. Um, yeah, it's also, I, I, I'm a little confused about the posture of complaining about it at this point. Why not just let Tucker Carlson, I mean, unless yeah. they think that their arguments now are going to actually prevent Tucker Carlson from doing what he's going to do, which seems to be deeply naive. Obviously, Tucker Carlson has the footage. He's going to do what he wants to do with yeah. it. No amount of Eric Swalwell complaining about it is going to change that. It seems to me. Like, why would why would Tucker Carlson listen? But, you know, assuming that it's not going to actually change Tucker Carlson's behavior, what he does with the footage, this stage of complaining about it seems really premature and easy to poke holes in. Now, if Tucker Carlson does a monologue where he says 1-6 was not that big a deal and liberals are complaining mm -hmm. and I'm justifying, you know, people breaking the law in these ways, well, then make the case against why what he's saying is wrong and use your own competing footage and, and mm -hmm. have that out. But this feels like a weird thing to be sucking so much media attention up and time up when there's these ongoing right. crises all across the, the country. The default should be not to shield the American people from information. The detail should be to release, or the, the default should be to release stuff. Because we do have people, uh, members of Congress who were in the Capitol while it was happening, of both parties, who have stories about how it all went down. We know members of, we know political figures have in the past exaggerated or mischaracterized uh, how things happened in crisis situations when they've been abroad, et cetera. So now we could theoretically verify some of the things they'd said that is absolutely within the public interest. Maybe we can't, but we'll see if that's what the footage shows. I think that's totally a legitimate area for journal. That's something that people deserve I, footage. I mean, yes, but Robbie, even that's a little bit of a, that framing is a little bit of a problem because it ignores that we have seen a ton of footage. Yeah. I'm not saying that things can't be recontextualized, but when you see, I mean, we've all right. watched the, the, the mob breaking the windows. We all I watched, watched it. I was there. It was really bad. Shot. It was yeah. horrifying. We all, you know, we all, we all watched the close calls yeah. of, of how how proximate 
throngs of people who had I, I think stated there, intent to cause harm were to con Congress members. Yes. So, so to the extent that there's you know a French case here and there, even framing it as we could find that the whole thing is debunked. I mean, no, we're not going to find that the whole thing is debunked unless. You, you know, right. there's AI that I, I saw. I saw the, with my own eyes. I saw with. people smash windows and push past police, and and, go, and it was embarrassing and horrible. Absolutely. But what I suspect they might find in some cases is that there are because the the the, the footage you've seen on CNN and other channels is is this. You know, really hor genuinely horrible. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that framing. Uh, mob footage of police being overwhelmed and o overcome. But it's a big building. There was a lot of people going in different ways. I bet there is more footage than we have previously seen of sure, police of, not of having any of, of police calmly telling the protesters, "Oh, this is so and so's office," and 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 it. Because some people have tried to say, well, we were invited in. And again, and I, in many places, they were not invited in. But there might have okay. been other hallways where they're so not I, having I this overrun, and that's going to be embarrassing. I completely agree that's that what that's I think. possible. And, but embarrassing, embarrassing to who? I, I think embarrassing to CNN. But here, exactly, like, What's from, from, Eric Swalwell? From, from, the, from the position of a, I'm a Democrat and yeah. the, the insurrection was wrong, the fact that police were complicit was very much a democratic narrative in the beginning, at least until they decided to vote to give the Capitol Police more funding. Yeah. But like to me, all of that just confirms the, the narrative that there are there right. is a conservative influence in the police force, right. there's a Blue Lives Matter influence, that there was they were in cahoots, which is why they were able to break down the barricades and get in. They wouldn't even break down the barricades, they were invited in as the argument. So many black people have made the argument about if this were a Black Lives Matter protest, it never would have gotten to this point because they would not have had that same flexibility from the police force. They would have been met as much, with much more hostility. I mean, that is all part of the kind of left-leaning narrative from yeah. the beginning. So again, I think that all of that, the, those kind of shades and contours might come out. But it's not embarrassing to Congress members, uh, Democratic Congress members, in the, or any Congress members in the least. No, I, th I think it's embarrassing to. No, I, no, I totally agree with what you just said. I, I think it's embarrassing to a kind of Democratic or liberal media commentator who is a lot more pro-police than you, and and wants and has wanted to present the police as a kind of victims of January 6th, or it has talked about the Republican. This was a Republican assault on law enforcement. Sure. Has made that their framing. Sure. This is going to undercut that. Well, by then good. Release the more. tapes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get you there. Well, a new law enforcement center has actually been unveiled in Washington D.C. It's designed to prepare for another January 6th attack or a public health emergency. D.C. Mayor Mariel Bowser said at the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the facility, we've learned a lot from the past three years. Be prepared for anything and everything, whether that's a global pandemic or an emergency at the U.S. Capitol. So those are similar. More than two dozen law enforcement agencies, including staff from the FBI, Secret Service, U.S. Park Police, U.S. Capitol Police, Washington, D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department, will occupy the 42,000-square-foot space in downtown Washington, NBC reports. They're, That's exciting. They're using public funds to militarize our cities. Mm -hmm. And we're all standing by and watching it happen. And they're specifically using black mayors to run cover for these authoritarian efforts. It's happening here. It's happening in Atlanta with Cop City. It's happened in Chicago. It's happening all across the country. And to the extent that there is a you know political cohort in the United States that is concerned about you know the civilians' right to you know, bear arms and protect themselves and have militias and states and those kinds of things. I think that that group should be a lot more concerned about what the state power is aggregating in cities like these. 
we have seen that when the police is increasingly militarized, there are more conflicts, um, escalations that are unnecessary, excessive force used with the civilian public, that the police departments ultimately have to pay a great deal of money, again, public money, to settle those kinds of claims. There is no material benefit for the people in these cities. Cities don't get safer. Crime rates don't go down. This is military spending on civilian populations. And identity politics and black mayors are being used to run cover for this effort. Yeah. And it's gross. Yeah. It is uh, really bad. And and how, how are they going to justify, I mean, look, I, I don't think this is a good use of police resources is to make a, a giant building to guard against having another January 6th because it's extremely unlikely to happen. Um, and what are they going to do with the global pandemic? What was the hook to that? What does that have to do with policing? Anyway, yeah. not, a, not a great it's, it's use the, of it's resources. It's the shock doctrine. Yeah. People, people who are critical of pandemic response were right about this. There's a genuine emergency. You yeah. use it to get more resources for pandemic. There's a gen, yeah. there's a, you know, you talk about rising crime rates. They use it to build more police facilities downtown. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg is facing an audit by a government watchdog group over his travel on planes owned by the Federal Aviation Administration. According to the Transportation Department, Buttigieg has made 18 flights using FAA aircraft, totaling over $41,000 in costs. Buttigieg's office maintains it was less expensive to use FAA planes than commercial uh, for all but one of those flights. This, of course, is only the latest blow to Buttigieg as he wards off intense criticism about his handling of the derailment crisis in East Palestine, Ohio. Now, the transportation secretary has been accused of antagonizing the press after taking a photograph of the Daily Caller's Jenny Tear when she tried to question him about the derailment. Now, when asked why the secretary took the picture, Buttigieg's team had this to say. Can I ask what the secretary is going to do with the picture of Jenny Tear? He took her the other day when he, she was asking a you question guys, in Washington, D.C. I'm happy to answer your questions. I would like you guys to not have your cameras on. I, I had don't... my camera off a minute ago. If I turn it off, we'll get to the question. You all have your cameras on. I can see them. You guys, I'm happy to have this conversation. Joining us now to weigh in is investigative immigration reporter at The Daily Caller, Jenny Tear. Jenny, welcome to Rising. Thank you so much. So why don't you get right into it and tell us, you know, what, what was that exchange like? So I think I saw the part of it up until where he actually asked for the picture. What, what happened after that? And, and did you provide the picture? And, and then did he explain why? And, and t tell us about it. Yeah, so while I was questioning him about the situation in East Palestine, I, you know, dropped a pretty quick interview right at the moment where he asked, to take my photo. He did take the photo uh, once I turned my camera off and then we went our separate ways. Of course, he told me that, you know, I was uh, kind of disturbing him on personal time at that moment. And this was just a couple of days before he decided to announce that he would go to East Palestine. So was the question about why he took the photo ever answered once the cameras were turned off in the clip we just saw or to you when the photo was taken? It all happened so quickly. He did walk away. I was walking away as well. It was, you know, not something I expected. Some people are saying that, you know, I was kind of lurking, waiting for him to, to come around and, and do his location. I, I wasn't, um, you know, I'm a reporter, so I spring into action at any moment. But I was actually waiting for my yoga class, and then I spotted Secret Service and the secretary. And I assessed the situation. You know, it was a public area. They were on the sidewalk. And 
And that's when I decided to just ask a couple of questions, just his message for the residents of East Palestine who are really suffering and, and want answers from the federal government. And uh, that's when he told me, I think he was on personal time, and that uh, I should look at his, you know, a couple dozen interviews he had done previous to that uh, encounter. Yeah, I thought it was a kind of bizarrely hostile move from him there. I mean, he has to by now be used to, you got to field questions from reporters at all times, even, you know, if, when you're off the clock. If someone comes up to you, it, it didn't seem like you did it in like a threatening or intimidating or aggressive way. And, you know, you asked him questions he's been asked. So uh, I, I don't know what, you know, what kind of impression does it leave in your mind uh, against uh, about Secretary Buttigieg, obviously, who's you know facing tr extreme criticism for maybe not going to the derailment site fast enough to, you know, down is been accused of downplaying it, saying, well, there's, you know, this many train derailments every year, et cetera. Right. I think the topic for him really struck a nerve. That's what I think. Uh, was the issue for him, not that he was on personal time. I mean, he definitely was. He was with his husband, Jason, at the, in the moment. Um, but I think that the topic was really something that disturbed him, as well as, you know, the encounter that our uh, my colleague Alexa Schwerha had in uh, East Palestine when he arrived with his press secretary, who was speaking with members of the press and then told them to turn their cameras off, that she would only speak with them if their cameras off. I mean, you're a press secretary. This is your job. You're supposed to speak with the press and you're supposed to be transparent. And I think that they've had a lot of issues with this topic of East Palestine. Yeah, that was also very bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've been described, it's, the exchange has been described as antagonizing. Um, and I wonder if you felt, I mean, did you feel intimidated or antagonized by uh, Buttigieg's choice to take the photo of you? Obviously, there's been a lot of discourse about the relationship between politicians and the press um, because of the ways that, you know, folks have been encouraged to boo the press at Trump rallies and kind of the disillusion of confidence in the press that's happened over the last, I don't know, four to six years or so. How did you feel when Buttigieg took uh, the photo of you, and what is your best guess as to why he did that? You know, I found it really odd because I identified myself from the start as a reporter. I gave my name, my outlet, and everything like that. If it was an intimidation tactic, I'm really not intimidated by it. I cover a lot of dangerous, harsh environments. My main thing is covering the border and immigration. And so this isn't something that scares me. In fact, it makes me just want to do my job even better and to continue to hold power to account. Mm. So, uh, you know, the conservative media has been uh, very interested, I think, in the East Palestine story. I think th that's fair to say. Um, in, in part because of, you know, the ability to criticize um, the Biden administration and Secretary Buttigieg, uh, you know, as someone who works for uh, right of center news outlet, um, you know, what has the, the reception been like from from readers, uh, from conservatives? And, and, you know, can you help kind of explain or elucidate uh, the, the is it really just about, well, this is an opportunity to make you know, Biden, maybe fairly, Biden looked bad, or is there was something more fundamental about the story that it's resonating with conservative audiences? I think it's the fact that uh, Secretary Buttigieg has had such high aspirations politically. He wanted to uh, become president of the United States. So a lot of people, especially our conservative audience, had their eyes on him for that reason. And he's received a lot of pushback. Uh, you know, he received pushback for taking time off when his uh, son was born. 
he, you know, has received now pushback for this uh, air travel uh, issue, um, a number of other things, the supply chain. So, you know, for reporters to kind of just get him in an environment where he may not be, you know, at a press conference or in some, you know, comfort zone for him, I think that's what really uh, drove people to the story. And, you know, it's just taken off. The video I posted has, you know, more than 4 million views now on Twitter. Yeah, I think the the focus on Buttigieg, some liberal, liberals have argued that it's inappropriate, but I think your point about how he was clearly seeking the highest office in the land and, frankly, a- occupies a significant cabinet position makes him ripe for scrutiny, especially given all of the crises that you've articulated that he's presided over. I'm also curious about coverage over Donald Trump, who's obviously running for president again as well. And it was under Trump that the break rule uh, was overturned that would have forced the, you know, the train to update its brakes to the uh, electronic brakes that uh, are more precise and prevent the kind of jackknifing that contributed to the crash in East Palestine. And I, and I wonder about how that's being framed and how kind of people in East Palestine, to the extent that you've talked to them, are receiving all of the various um, uh, claims about who is responsible here in a kind of really bipartisan way. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a valid point. And as you saw, the former president went to East Palestine. And I think the residents there uh, just found that him visiting, even just, you know, for what was kind of a photo op, even if President Biden did that, I mean, that's really what they needed, just some form of comfort. Um, And so I think there is some shared responsibility with that. Like we've seen in the past, there are some things that fall in the Trump administration. There are some things that, uh, you know, fall on the Biden administration. And we know the governor down there said that he got all the help he needed from uh, the Biden administration. So certainly uh, there's blame to go around. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. According to the Washington Free Beacon, Gal Luft, the co-director of the Washington-based Institute for the Analysis of Global Security, says he provided information about Hunter Biden, his father Joe Biden, and his uncle Jim Biden to the Justice Department in March 2019. Now, Luft served as an, served as an advisor to CEFC China Energy, the group which donated at least $350,000 to Luft's think tank, paid Hunter Biden at least $6 million in 2017 to procure energy investment deals in the United States. Now, investigators have focused heavily on Hunter Biden's deals with CEFC China Energy. Luft's threat to name names comes after his arrest in Cyprus on February 16th on charges that he illegally sold weapons to Libya and China. Now, Luft says that the United States is seeking his extradition as part of a politically motivated payback over his exposure of the Biden family. Luft's attorney, Robert Hinnock, told the Washington Free Beacon that Luft is a whistleblower, and he claims that prosecutors decided against pursuing Luft's information and are instead targeting him with trumped-up and false charges. Okay, there, there's a lot of yeah, stuff going on this in is this messy. story. So Luft and Hunter Biden both worked for this CEFC, were advisors to the CEFC Which group. is basically a front for the Chinese Communist Party, is what is alleged. <laughs> And because they were in close proximity, it is possible that Luft knows things about Hunter Biden and his dealings, and he's claiming that he knows things about Hunter Biden and his dealings. Right. And he's, he's claiming he told the government he's told things the about the dealings He's told the government, and they've declined already. to prosecute. He's, they've declined to right. look into it. 
and that they're now arresting him on arms arms sales charges, which, which he is very totally serious. denying. Arms charges to Libya and China? China? That sounds very serious. He's saying that that is trumped up because they just don't want, they don't like what he's saying about Joe yeah. Biden. And he's also appealing to Benjamin Netanyahu to save him from the United States of America. Yeah. So that, a lot of that is sketchy, I should just say. That does not... Um, um, him, the, being the arrest, dealers, the him being arrested on those charges doesn't make, immediately make me go, oh, that's BS. They're just trying to stick him with something. Hmm. That's, but a, it could that's be. a big charge to try to stick someone with. Yes. I don't know if, that, you know, if someone decided to take me down tomorrow, I don't know that they could convincingly make a case that I was an arms dealer. Mm -hmm. They could maybe say some other you things about me. You were a villain from but, an Iron Man movie <laughs> right? or something. There's <laughs> like a little bit of a there there to make that kind of a big claim. But I completely appreciate it's also true that certainly the government has framed people for all sorts and of like things. All things could be true. It could be that he's a, a, an arms dealer and a just utterly corrupt, reprehensible. And I mean, given his, even if you're not believing the arms dealing part of it, which again, I, th I think there's no reason to necessarily disbelieve it, um, he, he was involved in this this business venture involving the Chinese energy company with Hunter Biden. So he like, he's not like an unimpeachable person. Now he might, it might be reasonable for the government ideally to have more interest in or, or to cut some kind of deal and, and have more interest in Hunter Biden's involvement and if it has something to do with Joe Biden. And I can see why them declining to pursue that would would make people go, oh, well, is, is whoever is whatever agency is signing off on that covering for the Biden family. So I, I definitely understand that part of it. But uh, but uh, he he certainly has every incentive now to say that yes I'm a whistleblower I'm not a right. I'm not an arms I'm not dealer. an arms dealer yeah look I mean part of what's so but he could be both awkward he definitely could be both or he could just be an arms dealer right. without that much to say about Joe, right. Uh, Hunter Biden right or Hunter Biden could be and again Hunter Biden could be this is very bad what he was is sketchy and he was being paid basically so that he could influence I mean, his was, dad without there being any evidence that they succeeded in that or right. they did exert any that's what, that's what a, part of part of what's so uncomfortable here is that to the extent that you want to impeach the credibility of this alleged arm de arms dealer or the fact that he was being paid all of this money or his organization was being paid all of this money to facilitate these energy deals in a way that feels a little you know, untoward, Hunter Biden is right there with him for all of mm -hmm. it. And Hunter Biden's continued proximity to all of these sketchy... Arms dealers, <laughs> alleged arms dealers. Right, it's like, it's not like uh, Hunter Biden can sit here and say, I never met this man. I, I don't run in these circles. I, I yeah. this, is, this is not my world. I mean, obviously this is this world and these things keep coming up in a way that has very bad optics for the president if it were the case that any of this stuff were actually ever covered. The thing is, it's not. And at a certain point, it becomes, you know, the, the, the story of the inattention to Hunter Biden manifests as its own story. And we saw that yeah. with the, the Hunter Biden tapes, which so far, you know, there's been no revelation. There's no smoking gun that actually links it to any untoward behavior on Joe Biden's behalf. But yeah. the suppression of that was its own story. And that's it a, seems like this, it gives, it gives energy That's a great point. Like so I, I Googled the name, this gal left, that's his name. I Googled it. Um, I'm looking for news coverage, and it's it's being covered by the Washington Free Beacon, which did a pretty good story here. It's being covered by Newsmax, and I'm not seeing. And then I like a bunch of Israeli news outlets because of the connection to the Israeli government. It's not being the Jerusalem Post. Um, it's not being covered anywhere else. And then they're not covering it. I don't think necessarily with the Hunter Biden angle, which from the Israeli standpoint makes sense. Um, 
But uh, yeah, our, our, where are where is the mainstream American coverage of this? How long do they sit on their hands about this kind of stuff and then get embarrassed later? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hunter Biden does not make Joe Biden's uh, life easy. I'll just I'll just say that. <laughs> no, he does not. And and also I gotta say the kind of um, the optics of uh, a national of one of our four, our most trusted allies as. Hakeem Jeffries puts it as real, the sixth borough of New York being involved in an arms deal with China also turns upside down mm -hmm. all of our foreign policy narratives about who the enemies are and what our allegiances are. Uh, th there's nothing convenient about the mm -hmm. story to the mainstream. Well, press. the mainstream media was correctly all over the Trump children, Jared Kushner, for you know the influence they had, the influence he had, uh, Kushner had with Saudi Arabia, and 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 I think and it was right to cover all of that because a lot of it really was. Um, again, sketchy. I'm using the word sketchy a lot in this <laughs> segment. But, but look, Hunter, I mean, I'm not trying to draw an equivalency, but, uh, but we haven't even begun to understand. We've begun. We haven't gotten very far into understanding how much Hunter Biden attempted to do the same thing, maybe much less successfully. Maybe he didn't—it doesn't seem like he— Knows yeah, how I mean, to handle that, these that situations expertly. In, in fact, uh, I just but, had a, uh, but, he, but the, the yeah. connections to China are pretty are, are very concerning, given everything else. Yeah, in fact, I, I just had a, a guest on my show earlier this week, uh, a professor, Christian Parenti uh, from CUNY, and he was saying that the, the difference between the Trump children and the and Hunter Biden is that the Trump children never wrote anything down, and they were just cleaner and smarter about it. And here we have Hunter Biden, and we're talking about. Um, yeah. All of this mess and, and the, the, the interest in having an F, the conservative interest in having an inquiry into the FBI and any bias in their dealings, which is obviously implicated in this story as well. And, and he was saying that that's legitimate and that's something that people across the political spectrum should be interested in, because we certainly don't want it to be the case that they are selectively looking into information because of political reasons. If there's a there there, then we should know about it. Mm -hmm. um, of course, that can be weaponized in the opposite direction as well. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. This one's, this one's a rough one. This is one of those everybody's, everybody's sketchy stories. Fascinating. Well, one day we'll dig into your arms dealer past, Brianna. <laughs> <laughs> that does it for us today. What a great show today. Great show, Fantastic Robbie. topics, I thought. Uh, tomorrow on Rising, molecular biologist Dr. Alina Chan will join us to give her take on the Department of Energy stance on the lab leak theory. You really won't want to miss that. Mm -hmm. I am so looking forward to it. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who prefer to listen, while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.